0: In chapter 13, which as you know, is the great and famous chapter on love. Now, what does the Resurrection Sunday signify? We know that we've been going through the season of Lent. So we've been meditating on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, this is the other side of the cross. Now we're talking about resurrection. But what is this all about? What would be one simple way of expressing what the cross and the resurrection is all about? I think one simple way is the love of God, agape love of God. Why did Jesus die on the cross for us? Because He loved us. Because God was willing to allow His Son to come all the way down to earth, to become like human beings like us, identify with us, Identify with all our struggles and sufferings. And then die that death on the cross. Which is the way of salvation for us. He was willing to do that because of His love for us. And what about the resurrection part? How does that match with the love of God? Well, resurrection has to do with the power that God demonstrated. That love is not just something that is sacrificial. Love is not just something that is intentionally good and willing and and sacrificial. Love has to be powerful. And that's where we see the love of God being so powerfully manifested when the redemption is proven by the resurrection. And of course, when Jesus comes back again, the Bible promises that we will all be resurrected in our bodies as well. And we will be linked with Jesus. And we'll enter into the state of union with Jesus forever. Into all eternity. So, this is all about love of God. This is all about intimate relationship with God. So, I think it is appropriate for us to meditate on this theme of the love of God, which we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, let's read this text together verses 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But the greatest of these is love. Amen. Amen. Just so that you understand the context of this chapter, this is not just a chapter that is isolated and sort of like uh, dropped from heaven just to give us kind of like the Ten Commandments, the tablet with the, the Ten Commandments inscribed on it. It's not like that at all. Actually, you find this chapter in the context of the whole section in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, that has to do with the theme of spiritual gifts. And so we see right before this chapter, in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. He says desire gifts, desire good gifts. It's good that we do. But then he goes on to say, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. Desiring the gift is good. Understanding your potentiality. Understanding all that God has equipped you with. Understanding how you may serve the people of God and the people of the world. is all good. But Paul says, I will show you the most excellent way. In other words, exercise the gifts. But exercise the gifts in this most excellent way. As a matter of fact, anything you do in life, do it according to this excellent way. And what is this excellent way that he's talking about? He's talking about the way of love, which is the content of chapter 13. Now, this term, love, in the New Testament, is in Greek, agape. Could you repeat after me? Agape. Agape. You need to know this term. You need to be very familiar with this term. Because this is the new revelation that we receive in the New Testament about love. Before the New Testament was written, agape was rarely used. People didn't really know what that term was. So it was the New Testament which made agape the most pronounced term that describes the love of God. In Greek culture, there were many types of love. and We know some of them. Very clearly, eros type, eros. That's where we get the word erotic. It is a romantic, it is sexual type of love. It's when two people are attracted towards one another and they have this relationship, which is romantic. And we call that eros type of love. There's also philia type of love. This is a love or affection between friends, a sense of camaraderie. Because you've come to know each other, because you've come to be more familiar with the other, you give allegiance to one another. It's a philiate type of love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. It is the city of brotherly love. And then there was another word, storge. Storge was the love within the family. It's just simple allegiance we have because of the blood. You know, uh, the connection that we have because we are kinsmen. We are just naturally loyal to one another because we belong to the clan, so to speak. So it's that kind of love. But what is agape love? It's a completely different type of love, unheard of type of love. And this love has to do with unconditional, self-denying, self-sacrificing, self-giving of oneself for the sake of others. It is purely others-oriented. Every other type of love, something comes back to me. Eros, I get the pleasure. Felia, I scratch your back; you scratch my back. We are friends. We are bonded together. Storge, of course, it's within the clan, so we show loyalty and affection to one another. There's something that we can gain from all of this love. But in agape love, you may not have anything to gain because it's purely giving. Of course, if if a person is constantly giving, something good will come back to them. But you don't even expect that. You operate this way because it is your nature to operate this way. And it is the very nature of God Himself who was willing to give of Himself overflowingly for the sake of others. And this is the type of love that we're going to talk about today. And so let us begin with verses 1, 2, 3. And Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, that is agape love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. So Paul is giving all these illustrations, talking about tongues, prophecy, faith. And he's not talking about saving faith here. He's talking about faith that can move the mountains, almsgiving, and finally martyrdom. And all of these have to do with some kind of gifting, some kind of manifestations in the Holy Spirit. And he's basically saying, you may operate in all of that, but without love, it's nothing. It's useless. In verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of man or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And the tongues manifestation will become a major topic in chapter 14, as we'll discover There was a whole controversy over this manifestation of tongues, which was something spontaneously that happened to them. And basically, it was a spiritual language. They could not even understand what they were saying. But you could imagine the mystique behind such a way of operation. If you spoke in a language that you didn't understand, nobody else understood, that can come across as something fantastic. And people were drawn to that. And the people who are manifesting in that, they took pride in that. It became a show. It became a performance. And some of them went around thinking that this is the language of angels. You know, we can't understand it, but it sounds so angelic. And they had all these mystical notions about this language. But Paul says, no matter how much you go around parading yourself and speak in such language with such eloquence and such poetic way, without love, it is no different from resounding gong or clanging cymbal. You know, you have to understand, this, this is a picture uh, language of those Corinthians who are accustomed to pagan way of worshipping. And uh, it's kind of similar to what we see in Korean shamanism. And even the Greek culture in those days had those kind of shamanic tendencies. And we certainly see that in the Roman Empire because they had all kinds of ways of worshiping to enter into this kind of trance or ecstatic state. So what they do is they have these gongs and they have these symbols and they would just bang, 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 bang and make a lot of noise. And in the process, they kind of enter into this kind of a transcendental state, you know. It's kind of like brainwashing. You know, if you repeat something long enough, you get kind of mesmerized. You enter into some kind of hypnotic state. You enter into a zone. And that's what they were doing, just banging, banging, bang, bang. You know, in, in Korea, uh, our custom, too, we have certain type of dance where, you know, we, we bang at the gong, right? We, we beat the drums. We enter into that. But what the shamans do is they do that so that they can enter into ecstasy. But Paul is saying, without love, what does this mean? What value do you have? What benefit do you give to people? You see the difference between just banging at something and making noise and making beautiful sound and melody and and have a harmonic tune to it? It's totally different. Even music without lyrics, if you do it lyrically with melody lines and harmonizing that, there's something beautiful, something inspiring about that. But if you're simply making noise, sounds, it has no content. It has no substance. This is what Paul is talking about. If you do that on and on in your life, just talking and talking, having all night conversations. engaged in the internet, you know, uh, resources. And you get into that, but what does it really do? How does it benefit the people? And then he says in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. There are two things that human beings always Constantly looking for. And they, they want to possess this. And more we possess, more highly we regard ourselves. And people of the world lift, lift us up. And that is knowledge. If I have some kind of profound knowledge, that's why people go for degrees. I have a doctorate degree. And people naturally think you have a PhD. So, wow, you must have special knowledge. You're at a level of knowledge that is beyond the normal ordinary people's knowledge. And we take pride in that. Another thing that people take pride in is power, something that can move and influence others in a tremendous way. Something that uh, causes you to have leverage over other people who do not have that. It could be money, it could be fame, it could be talent. In this case, it's the spiritual ability, by faith, to move the mountains. But Paul says, what use is it? You may have the depth of prophecy and profound mystery and knowledge. You may have the power of faith which can do miracles, even move the mountains. But without love, he says, if I operate like this, I am nothing. I am nothing. In other words, in this world, people say, I am something based upon knowledge and power. Paul says, if I don't have love though, I am nothing. I am nothing. And then he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, and that is martyrdom. It's obvious the context is the, to suffering. That is, I'm willing to hand over my body, to set it on fire, to, to show people that I am witnessing Christ, and all that, I may boast about it. But if I do not have love, I gain nothing. And obviously, we can give to the poor. We can even set our bodies on flame. And we can do this as a way of protest or we can do it as a way of a prophetic gesture. But the thing is, what do I really gain if I don't have love? Love is the true intention behind this. You might think, but when you're giving to the poor, aren't you doing it out of love? Not necessarily. There are people who do it for tax break. There are people who do it So that, um, you know, you're a great philanthropist and everyone's indebted to you. Uh, You can give to the poor, but it doesn't mean you really have the heart for the poor. You may do it because people are watching you and people praise you for that. You may even offer your bodies as a show of martyrdom, as a demonstration of your faith. But you may not have any love for the people. There are people who do fantastic things without love. And Paul says, if it doesn't have love, and you really do not care about others, then it really means nothing, and you have gained nothing. And that's the way he starts off. He talks about the necessity of love in everything that we do. And so maybe we need to remind ourselves, in anything that we do, no matter what good it may be, no matter how heroic it may sound, no matter how magnificent people may say, wow, that's great of you and praise you. But if it is not out of love, then we must question our motives. What are we really doing if it's not out of love? And then Paul gives us this lengthy definition of love from verses 4 to 8a. And he wants to really show us the very nature of love. What nature, what love is like. And he says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, anytime I get to this section in my reading or meditation from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I find this text to be very poetic. You know, it's almost like I can just you know, hang it on the wall and see, see the words and it sounds very poetic. But I could never really digest these words because there's so much in it. Do you know what I'm saying? I usually stop with the first word, you know, love is patient. That's good enough. I'm going to work on that for the next 10 years. <laughs> you know. But in this uh, preparation for this message, I've been able to identify some kind of pattern here. Okay? First of all, love is defined in terms of two positive words. He starts off by saying love is patient, love is kind. Those are two positive terms. Very affirming. Just concentrate on that. Being patient or long-suffering... Being kind to others. And I see some kind of pattern here. Patience has to do with something that, that makes you really strong and firm. You know, it takes firm and strong people to be able to exercise patience. But kindness has to do with gentleness. So it's the soft side of love. Hard side of love is patience. Soft side of love is kindness. Kindness. And Paul saying, you need to work on that. You know, to be honest, I don't think we need to worry about the rest of the text. If we can work on these two concepts related to love for the next 10 years, I think we'll all end up being saints. No matter what we do, just be patient. Be long-suffering. Be willing to bear through people's nonsenses, you know. Or, or just, just, it's not happening your own way, but just being patient through the whole process. Or being kind. You know, no matter what, you show kindness to others. You show gentleness to others. Those are the two positives. And then, it is followed by eight negatives. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angry, It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so on and on. So the emphasis here is, just don't do these things. Don't operate these things, these ways. Just engrave that in your mind. Say, I, I should not be envious. I should not be boastful. I should not be prideful. I should not dishonor others. I should not be self-seeking. I should not be easily angered. I should not keep records of people's wrongs and be resentful. I should not delight in evil. So the emphasis is upon the negative here. And then he has four absolutes. Here the term is Panta, which means all or all things. In everything that you do, operate this way. And so in verse 7, it Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So ask yourself this question Am I in relating to others, am I protective of them? Am I trusting them? Am I hoping in them? Am I persevering with them? And then finally, there's one absolute negative, and this is a big term never. He says, love never fails, never fails. And the Greek word here is pipte, which means actually falling or collapsing. Love never collapses under pressure. Love is so firm, it is able to withstand all kinds of pressure, all kinds of burdens, all kinds of attacks, all kinds of nonsenses that come our way. Love is able to hold its position. Now, I don't mean today to expound on each of these concepts. Of course not. There's no way I can do that. Actually, some preachers take uh, several months to go through each of these items here. To expound as to what the definition of love is. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say that when we look at these terms, we discover that love is so difficult for us. And so perhaps as we are burdened by these requirements, we should surrender even this concept or demand of love into the hands of the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do it. I don't think I can even do the first thing. I, I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I try to be, but then I always falter. Some, sometimes, somewhere. And I show impatience. I show unkindness. And rest of the others, I don't even have to talk about it. because I'm, I'm disqualified in so many ways. Every day I sin regarding love. So Lord, I can't do it. But by the way, Lord, isn't agape something that you're known for? We're not known for agape. We're not used to agape. The world does not teach us agape. Even in the church, we falter so much in agape. We generalize love and we talk about love as some kind of affection and something that has to do with people who are familiar and those people who belong to our clans or our cliques. We're nice to them. But we know that true agape is a self-sacrificial, other-oriented type of love that only God can truly demonstrate. So much so that Apostle John, in his first letter, made some statements about this agape. Let me read for you some text here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, and verses 19 to 21. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into this world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So how do we learn about love? We learn about love from Jesus. I can't do it. But if I see Jesus in the Gospels, I see how He did it. And when I behold His cross, I see the epitome of love. So what I decided to do today is convert this passage that we have just read. And instead of using the term love, I replace that with Jesus. And I'm going to just personify this. Because if I say love, then that love is patient, then that comes back to me. And I got to be patient because I got to be loving. But if I put Jesus into the picture, the picture is completely different. i show you what I mean. Let's look at this text once again. And for each agape love, we're going to replace that with Jesus. All right? So, In verse 4, we start with Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And then I love this. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. And I love this last part. Jesus never fails. Perhaps the way to love is by reflecting on Jesus' way of love, demonstrated to us on the cross, and all throughout his incarnate life, we have his gospel stories. We have his teachings. We can have an image of Jesus as the exemplar of love. And when we have that picture right, that this is the way of Jesus, this is not just crude, just law that is imposed upon us, because it's too cruel. Is it because it's impossible? And then it becomes laws and regulations. I cannot possibly accomplish this. But when I see Jesus in this, and I say, wow, I want to be like you, Jesus. You're patient. I want to be like you. I want to be patient. You're kind. I want to be like you. You don't envy. You don't boast. You're not arrogant. You're not self-seeking. I want to be like you. Maybe there's a chance for us to become more like Jesus. Jesus if we address these topics from the perspective of Jesus being the exemplar of love. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 8b, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I become a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul is saying these fantastic giftings and manifestations like prophecy and tongues and revelatory knowledge, time will come when they will cease. Because these are only partial realities. No matter how fantastic they may be. And and I I know a little bit about spiritual gifts because I used to uh, pastor a very gifted church that really was endowed in all kinds of spiritual gifts. Fantastic manifestations of the ways of the Holy Spirit was demonstrated in our midst quite a number of years ago when I pastored that church. But the problem is, all those manifestations are only partial. No matter how distinct those revelations may be, no matter what kind of prophecy that you may have received, no matter what kind of vision or dream encounter you may have had in the Lord, it's only partial. And it is not permanent. It is temporary. And so Paul says, they're going to be still. There's going to, It's going to pass away. But when is he saying that this will pass away? This is the question that we need to ask because there are those uh, scholars who call themselves cessationists and they have this notion that uh, that all these gifts will pass away once we have the New Testament in place, once we have the complete canon or the text of the Scripture, then we don't need these gifts anymore. And so they believe that after the times of the apostles, and after the Bible was given completely, you know, 27 books of the New Testament, total 66 of the Bible, once that's in place, we don't need any of these nonsensical gifts anymore. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying these gifts are nonsense. He's saying these gifts are for real. They are very important. But just realize that these gifts are only part. And that should cause us to be humble. If I only know part of the truth, part of the knowledge, part of the mind of God, then I don't have it all together. I need other pieces from others. I need others to bring Fourth, the whole picture as to what it looks like. And then Paul gives the two illustrations. He says, like a child who grows up into manhood and leaves the childish way behind. Or like a mirror, that in those days, the mirror is not quite perfect mirror like we have today. I mean, I don't know whether I can use the word perfection to talk about a mirror image, but I think we do have images like almost near perfection, like even screens, with such a, such clarity, such precision, that we're just totally surprised. It's so much more clear than I could see with my bare eyes sometimes. But in those days, the mirrors were basically polished matter, you know, polished brass. And so it, it was dim. You couldn't quite get the picture like what we have today. I hear that it was on... It wasn't until 13th century that we had a mirror like the way we have mirror today. So Paul is saying, well, we're looking at very inferior type of imaging. Okay? So we need some other way to see the image, and that's not going to happen until, he says, the day of completion or perfection, which is the word teleon. And teleon is related to the word telos, which means the end or the goal. And we know very clearly that the telos has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ, when Jesus actually reappears in His incarnate form, and we are able to see Him face to face. So, let me tell you, this passage is not to be used by as some cessationist theologians would use them to undermine spiritual gifts. There's a very famous uh, pastor named John MacArthur in Southern California, and he's uh, very anti-charismatic. And uh, when I was uh, part of the charismatic type of, uh, doing charismatic type of ministry, I heard about this man who's just basically renouncing or refuting All the charismatic things all together and saying, look at this, based upon this text, the perfect is here because we have the scripture. And once we have the scripture, we don't need these imperfections. And he would just write off all these gifts, these precious gifts that God has given us. But even commoners, when they look at this text in context, they know that this is talking about the reappearance of Jesus because he's the perfection. You can't say the Bible is the perfection. No, the Bible is talking about the one who is perfection. That's Jesus Christ. And besides, when we read the Bible, we got so many interpretations, we wouldn't know what that perfection is. Perfection is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who has that perfection. And when He reappears, we will see Him face to face. And so he says in verse 12b, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And then finally he says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, he said, you know, the things about prophecy, tongues, knowledge, all these fantastic gifts, and the manifestations, they're not going to last. Okay? No matter how brilliant you are, how spiritually sensitive you are, they're not going to last. And they're only portional. So we have to be humble about that. We don't have the whole picture. And then he says, what will last all into eternity are these three things. Faith, hope, and love. I know some people will say, why would faith remain even into eternity. Why would hope remain even into re- eternity? I mean, once we get there, we don't need hope anymore. Hope has to do with something that we ha- we don't see. But once we see, we don't need hope anymore because we're seeing face to face. So why would we need hope into all eternity? And why would we need faith anymore? Faith is, uh, you know, being certain, or having the assurance of what we do not see. But on the day, we will see Jesus, so why do we need faith? Let me tell you why we need faith, why we need hope, and certainly why we need love into all eternity. Because of faith, the term, the Greek term is uh, pistis. And it is not just... Uh, a principal statement like "Okay, I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith. I can't see anything, so I gotta have faith. Faith. I believe. I believe. I believe." And you're hoping that that will happen. That's not the real definition of faith. The real definition of faith, pistis, is trust. It's a relational term. So, is there any time in the future in heaven that we will lose faith or trust? No. We will trust the Lord for everything, every moment. Right? Faith is not just some goal-oriented thing. Just to get there, I got a faith and I got to have this drive. And once I get there, I don't need faith anymore. No, because faith is simply trust. Trusting and totally depending upon that person to be benevolent towards me. That's what faith is. What about hope? What is hope? Now, if everything just ends when we get to heaven then we don't need hope anymore. But if that is not the case, but rather everything begins, truly begins when we arrive in heaven, then we need faith into all eternity. Because Jesus is going to show us the adventure of this eternal travel with Him into all eternity. And that's why I think He created the universe in such a vast way, so that we can explore with Him into all eternity. A lot of people think when we go to heaven, it's all over. Okay, it's all over. We, we made it. We suffered. We persevered. We prayed hard. We shed blood of martyrdom. And here. And then what? Use your imagination. If there's nothing more we do when we arrive in heaven, then it is like what the Hindus and the Buddhists are talking about. The state of Nirvana. Where you kind of... Um to all eternity doing nothing in this calm water of consciousness Um, what kind of nonsense is that that's not a picture of Christian utopia for us it doesn't end with that if I want that kind of heaven then, uh, then I don't know I think I'd be bored to death with eternity. But if heaven is going to be bustling with energy and vitality and works and missions and, and visiting all these uh, galaxies and visiting different dimensions, what Christ has created for us, then I would say heaven is going to be worth it. I know some of you, when you hear me talk like this. You're probably going, oh, no, I don't. I'm don't! i so tired of life. I, I want it to just end in heaven. I want nirvana. But I'm telling you, Christian way is not nirvana. Christian way is really working with that vitality and that energy and that, that supernatural power and the giftings, never getting tired, never getting bored, never getting burdensome, It is amazing, amazing vitality that's waiting for us. So, friends, we're still going to have hope when we go to heaven. Don't let anybody tell you hope is going to end. No, because heaven is not going to end. If heaven ends, then hope ends. And we have arrived. But Paul is simply saying that when we see face to face, it's just how much do you see when you see Jesus face to face? How deep is His love? How deep is His his being? That we can say we know Jesus, everything about Jesus. We cannot, because He's God. We cannot know everything about God. Never, ever. And that's why we have eternity. So that we continue to journey with Him. We continue to explore His inner depth. Then, of course, love. Do we need to say anything more about this? Why is love eternal? Why is love eternal? Because it is the way of God. God, by nature, is love. According to John, first letter, he says, God is love. This is his nature. That's the way he is. And if you want God, if you want his eternity, then you must understand that this is the way of love. And that's why he says, love is the greatest of them all. You You will have faith, you will have hope, and you will certainly have love But of them all, love is the greatest. Why? Because love defines the very nature of God. Faith and hope is simply the means by which we look forward to the Lord and we have access to Him. That's how we do it. That's how we operate. But love is the way of God. This is the nature of God. That's why this is the greatest thing. So I want to remind you on this Resurrection Sunday... And I want to exhort you. Go for love. And explore as to what this love is all about. This is not something just simplistic that we have known as like, sure, we know what love is. We don't know what love is. I think that's what Paul is trying to say. We have made love so superficial. We have made love so temporal that we don't really understand the depth of love. And he's trying in his, his own way, putting all these words and making it impossible for us to achieve until we say, I don't understand what love is. But when I say Jesus, and you put Jesus' name with all these attributes, with these characteristics, then it makes sense. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the nature of Jesus. And this is the nature of our triune God, who is truly loving. And by the way, final thing that I want to say. When you invest yourself in love, love, agape, is a noun. But actually, when Paul defines it, he defines everything in verbs. Interesting, isn't it? Because love is an action verb. Because you don't have love, you do love. You, you give love. You enact in love. It's always actional. So if we're not doing anything actionally in terms of doing, when we're thinking about loving, then we haven't even got to to the first base. Because love is not just something that you hold in your heart, you just kind of uh, consider that as your good intention. Love is not that. Love is something that you do. That's why John defined love as God sending his own son. To die on the cross for us. That's what love was. He did something for us. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself for us. That's what love is. Amen? Amen. So I want us to sing this uh, love song, Love of God hymn, that we sang at the during our worship time. And I want us to sing with a sort of like a gusto. And as I was singing today in our worship time, wow, this... This is a great lyrics. This is, oh, this is, uh, this is such a poetic uh, way of articulating it. I love this because this is one of the most famous hymns that we could possibly sing. So let's sing this with, uh, with all our hearts. And can we just stand up as we sing this? And I think when we stand up, we're able to use our diaphragm more and uh, use our body more. And let's just sing it with a gusto. Uh, sing it with, as though really giving worship unto the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, agape love. We are barely beginning to understand what that is. And when we go to heaven, Lord, we will be more enlightened than ever before about what agape love is. The depth, the breadth, the height, and the length of your love, the words cannot describe But you desire to enfold us with that kind of love. And you have given us through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 text a glimpse as to what that love is. And I pray that you would make us excited about what knowing that love is about and how we are the recipients of that love that came from you. And how we are called to now exercise that very love. The love of God. uh, With one another. And to, unto others. And that's what we want to do, Lord. We want to be like novices who are just barely beginning to learn and understand. And this will be an ongoing thing into all eternity. Loving with that depth and profundity. As Christ, you loved us. God the Father, you loved us, and the Spirit, you love us. So teach us how to love like the way you loved. Teach us to be inspired by this great way, the most excellent way, which must encompass everything that we do in our daily life, in our spiritual life, in our exercise of spiritual gifts in the midst of our community, the church. And everything we do, especially towards the unbelievers, those who do not know you, give us the compassion, give us the mercy, give us the love of God with which we can reach out to them. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Now please be seated and at this time we're going to continue our worship as we partake of the communion. uh, That our Lord has granted us and He's demonstrated this uh, as a way of understanding His presence and the presence of the members of the body of Christ. And as His body was broken and His blood was shed, now Jesus says, I'm going to bring wholeness to you as you partake of these elements. So that through these elements and partaking of them, you will understand what I intend for you to do as the body of Christ. As I was broken and I was shedding of the blood, I don't want you to do that amongst your mist. I don't want you to tear each other into pieces, shed each other's blood. Let your body be whole. So... This is a prophetic statement for us. This is the way we ought to operate. We must be whole. We must be united. We must be loving and forgiving. We must be patient and kind with one another. And He's offering Himself to us because He paid for it all so that we don't have to go through that damage anymore. He was damaged. He was broken, He was shattered, He died so that we can live, and we can be united. So on the night before Jesus was to die on the cross, He gathered together in the upper room with His disciples, and He invited them to this final ritual in which he took a piece of bread and he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup of wine and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant a blood, this covenant that I am making with you. Drink this in remembrance of me. I would like to invite all of you to please come even the children you may come together and please receive the portion of the bread and the cup and we'll all hold uh, these elements together and we will eat and drink them together Okay. so I'd like to invite you to the table of the Lord and please come into this communion with him and with one another. Close our eyes and meditate for about Uh, a minion or so, as to what this is. Uh, We should not take this uh, lightly. We should do it with uh, a true sense of sincere heart and humble heart, knowing that we are not deserving of the body and the blood of Christ. But that's what agape love is. And that's what God's grace is. Giving His tremendous love and blessings to those who do not deserve it and he paid for everything so we can freely come and access his benefits so let us quietly meditate on the body and the blood of Jesus And at this time, let us lift up these elements and pronounce them. This is the body of Christ, Christ. which which was broken for me. And so let us partake of the body of Christ. Now, let us lift up the cup and pronounce, This is the blood of Christ, Christ, which was poured out for me. And let us partake of the blood of Christ. Now, please receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His face towards you. Always shine forth in your favor with all His love, peace, joy, and kindness. And may you go forth now and radiate the love of Jesus Christ unto others. And be reminded once again of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That love indeed is patient, long-suffering, and kind, and gentle. Go forth now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.